have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Howdy folks, this is Willard Wingnut, and I'm sure we've all heard the same expression, a woman works from sun till sun, but a voiceover works from noon till one. And I thought, hey, I want to be one of them. So I decided to get some lessons in voice acting. And of course, what I did was looked up the best voiceover coach I could possibly find, which was Alicia Bowman. So basically, this is what I sounded like six months ago. But today... I sound like this. I begin every sentence with, in a world, in a world where there were a million mediocre voiceover coaches, where they were like lukewarm roller dogs at 7-Eleven. There was one that stood out head and shoulders above the rest, the one and only Elise Bowman. And she can coach you too. Go to EliseCoaches.com. That's E-L-I-S-E Coaches.com. And you can become a voiceover, too. Now back to my regular voice. That's right. She's like magic, so check her out. And if you have half as much fun as she does, well, she'll have twice as much fun as you. Welcome back to another exciting week here on the I Know You Hear Me podcast with me, Flynn Hendricks. Guys, I want to take a minute and thank our sponsors, for keeping us going every week, and I especially want to thank all of you for continuing to tune in, sending the fantastic reviews, connecting with us on social media, and continuing to tell your friends. And I have one more ask, too. If you are on iTunes, please leave us a five-star review so that we can keep this train rolling and I can keep bringing you awesome guests like the one we have here today. My guest today is not only a voice actor, I became familiar with him through uh, his voice work on Dragon Ball Z. You may know him as the voice of Bobbity, among other characters. He was also the voice of Chuck E. Cheese and the voice of Barney. He is now involved in ministry work, and he has a book coming out titled The Soldier Code, Ancient Warrior Wisdom for Modern-Day Christian Soldiers. It is my absolute honor and privilege to have on the show today, Duncan Brannon. Duncan, how are you doing today? I am doing excellent. How are you, Flynn? Man, I'm doing good. Uh, got a little tongue-tied, got a little nervous given that introduction there. I wanted to make sure I did it justice. Uh, well, from one voiceover to another, I completely understand. <laughs> it happens. So, Duncan, I really appreciate you being on today. And, and like I was saying in your introduction, I became familiar with you uh, through your work on the Dragon Ball franchise. And then upon doing some more research through there, you know, I found out about you being the voice of Chuck E. Cheese, being the voice of Barney for a period in the late 90s. And then now, of course, connected through Facebook and through some mutual friends, I see that you are also involved in ministry work and... You know, you're an author now. Like, there's a lot to unpack there. So I want to uh, I want to dive right into it. Give us a little bit more about your backstory and what led you into the voice acting to kind of start things off here. 
Sure, sure. Well, not to go too far, I won't stay there in the, the way distant past or the primordial past too long. <laughs> <laughs> I developed an interest in voice acting even as a kid. Back then, it was called voiceover, of course. It wasn't voice acting. Um, right. So, that would be all proper. That's what you're talking about right now. But I became interested in it just through cartoons. I was raised on Looney Tunes and mm-hmm. Hanna-Barbera and... It was the era of Saturday morning cartoons, which oh, yeah. I thoroughly loved. My little brother, he was my best playmate, and we did. And funny enough, we got into this three back in the 80s. About the time I was coming into junior high, I think, and he's fourth or fifth grade, I guess. We collected action figures like G.I. Joe and He-Man and all that kind of stuff and so forth. But we started making our own stories. Oh, that's awesome. And so we, you know, we got it. We would get out the recording equipment. I would build a little Foley stage for us. You know, like we would do a, like a Transformers story, for example. Yeah. And out the, the old metal vacuum cleaner tube so we could bang them together, you know, like the robots were fighting and so right. forth. I had a handful of soundtrack albums. Uh, that's how far back we are. And, and so forth. So we would have, you know, underscoring in the background and all that kind of stuff. And we would decide who's going to play which characters up front. And we would do G.I. Joe, Transformers and all sorts of them and so forth. That's where I was cutting my teeth and I didn't even know it. Right. And by the time I got into uh, to middle school, to junior high, I had done some stand-up comedy work and stuff. I'd done talent shows when I was a kid and cut my teeth there, memorizing Bill Cosby sketches and so forth and entertaining family. Oh, nice. All that kind of stuff. And so by the time I got into junior high, though, I started getting serious about it. I really recognized a joy for the acting craft and everything around it. And I got into competitions and impromptu and improv and all kinds of stuff like that. And by the time I was in high school, uh, senior year, I was like, I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to be a star, blockbuster, motion, motion picture. I love it. That. And, you know, set my sights there and went on into college, got to some classical training and, and all of that. Uh, learned how to sword fight and fence. Nice. And learned some stage combat as well. I was doing everything I could to be the triple threat. Right. I love that. I love that. And enhance that skill set. And so that's kind of the whole background acting wise there. So I, I got to ask with all that, I know like when you see a lot of actors or even comedians or performers that are off stage, they're very introverted and not as outgoing. Because I can tell like just with how enthused you are and the mannerisms and the way you interact with people, were you as extroverted and outgoing back then or were you a shy kid that just kind of developed into that outgoing person? That's a great question. I was, I guess I was always an extrovert if people were nice to me. Right. I understand that. You know, I I had my share of bullies growing up and Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And so, of course, I wasn't really extroverted with them. (laughs) (laughs) But that said, yeah, I was the kid who would be a friend of anybody in school. And I wasn't the, the class clown by any means. I mean, I was a good boy in school and I got good grades and all that kind of stuff. Right. But I was known for already for for being the actor for being the the guy with some kind of gift i remember you know in fourth grade for example gosh of course this is back when we were still allowed to to talk bible in in school and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and i remember uh we did a, a a nativity story in fourth grade and i got selected 
to play the uh, the inn owner that's rejecting Joseph and Mary, you know, wow. from coming in the inn and so forth. And it's actually a pretty good part, pretty good beefy part. It's my first villain role, I guess. Right? Nice, nice. <laughs> the fun ones, <laughs> I anyway. <laughs> I, I didn't have to do an evil wizard or anything like that. <laughs> you know? But nevertheless, we got through with it and a whole bunch of friends and so forth. For example, wow, you know what? You're pretty good at that. Yeah. Even back then, yeah, I I had eyes on it, and I was I was a kid who liked to be a friend really with anybody, and I think I recognized early on too that everybody has their own gift. I saw them in me, and then I saw them in friends who were super good at sports and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I played sports too, but I, I recognized a difference between <laughs> what I could do on the field and what they could do, and or what a friend could do with a pencil and so forth. I remember a kid named Lance Hatton, and man, he was just this crazy artist and. I, so I knew people with gifts in, in every room, and I was like, you know, that's great, man. Do you do your deal? I love the world. it, and I love that like you were able to pick up on that. But maybe not so much now. But I know when I was growing up, if somebody didn't had a special talent, it wasn't necessarily embraced. Especially like if you got caught drawing in math class or whatever it was. Nobody talked about how good the sketch you were doing was. It was just get back to work, get to the math. So, did you ever have anything like that with your talents that like? met some resistance or like did your family were they supportive of it along with your friends let's see well for one i'll start with the support thing it was definitely supported by my mom my mom she had an acting gift too she never really got to pursue it because it wasn't supported by her family she came from a very strong religious background i mean to the point where it was legalistic and it was like you know we don't have anything to do with the arts and all that kind of stuff so it was really discouraged for her and so I think a lot of that stuff was repressed for her. And so mm-hmm. she recognized that she had a son who had the bug. Part of it, admittedly, was was her vicariously wanting to experience. Yeah. To capture some of that magic for her. But she was strongly supportive in me also. She was she was my biggest fan by far and, and was the one who recognized that I could memorize stuff fast and uh, I could definitely emote. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and play it up when I got in trouble and stuff. More stuff. <laughs> she saw that and she encouraged me to be a fully rounded thespian that way and, and pursue it and all that kind of stuff. And so she was the supportive type and, and, and came from a background where it wasn't. I think as far as non-support, the only time I really saw that I think I was already aware of it at that point. Okay, in school, middle school, you know, you had the jocks. And if you were in acting at you know at that point, you know, you were a sissy boy or whatever and so forth. And I was already past that. I was right. just like, no, no, you're a Cro-Magnon. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, I, you know, when, when they would start down that path, I was 10 miles up the road ahead of them, and I was ready to intellectually beat them down before they were ready to physically right. go with me. And so by that time, it was most of the time I was able to talk my way out of a fight <laughs> and so forth. But I, I did have to learn how to throw a little bit, too. Understandable, understandable. And in a situation like that, too, where you're already past that point because you'd been aware of it, did other kids that may have been younger than you or newer to everything around you that may have been hitting those roadblocks and hitting that, you know, that negativity, did they come to you for any kind of advice or like a big brother type of thing? You know, the first kid I think of that I, that I saw who had just, I mean, crazy raw potential, his name was Greg. And uh, I remember him way back from elementary school. 
smart kid. If he had been diagnosed nowadays, he probably would have been diagnosed, you know, OCD or something like that and mm-hmm. so forth. But he had a ton of energy, a ton of creativity. He was a pretty good artist and so forth. But you could tell he had a rough home. And those of us who were friends of his at school recognized it too. And I remember this one teacher, and it was the fourth grade class also. This was still the days too when teachers could be more verbally abusive, more mm-hmm. be- beat kids down more and stuff like that. And she went after this kid just day after day. And oh. finally, finally me and one other kid in the class, I told this story to my, my wife and kids many times before, and they were just like, oh, because of what happens next. Finally, me and this other kid, James, we got sick of it one day. The rest of the class would just be here like this. And of course, Greg is over here bawling crocodile tears because his teacher's just Hate to hear verbally that. ripping him apart and so forth. Yeah. And James is the one who started it that day. And from the other side of the room, you know, came this voice, why don't you just leave him alone, you old bat? And everybody was like, <laughs> and I looked over, and of course, James is my best friend, and I was like, yeah, why don't you shut up and leave him alone? You're always picking, I mean, this is fourth grade, so yeah. if you say shut up or something like that to a teacher, you're going to get licks and so yep. forth. But both of us immediately just started pushing back, and she never came at him again after that. That was something that was instilled into me, just the hatred of bullying, period. My father was so good about that, just teaching right and wrong. And he, you know, he taught us how to box and stuff like that. And, but mom had a good value set that way. And just go to good old-fashioned American values of, yeah. you know, don't ever, and, and chivalry. Don't ever suffer a bully and don't ever suffer someone in your presence to be bullied when you can do something about it. Absolutely. That really kind of started a trend that way because Greg went that day from being kind of an acquaintance. He went to being a really good friend. He was really grateful. And it changed the whole model of the relationship. And, of course, over the years, yeah, I can definitely look back um, high school, coming into college, things like that, where there were people who who came to me for advice about the craft, mm-hmm. who looked at me as a, as, a, as a leader and things like that. And I have good memories about those those conversations and so forth because I don't – really have any re- you know, recollections where I just thought some, you know, no, you're stupid. You shouldn't try that or don't even bother and so forth. The pessimism, the cynicism, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. It wasn't even a thought for me that way. It was just, I was too busy enjoying the crap number one yeah. myself, but I also enjoyed seeing it come alive in other people. Absolutely. Cool. I had a handful of good teachers along the way. Mm-hmm that taught the art and they taught some good values with it. And of course my parents, like I said, too. Yeah. It makes a, it makes a difference when you have people, especially that are, I don't necessarily know if authority figures is the right term for it, but when they're supportive of that too, that makes yeah. all the difference in the world. And it makes you kind of feel like you've found your path with that too. I know just a few minutes ago, you said that you wanted to make yourself kind of like the triple threat. You had fencing, you had improv, stage combat, and other forms of, uh, of acting as well. Just because I'm kind of in a position like that now with improv, dialects, we're doing live acting for the season with Halloween coming up. And then on top of that, real-time job, voice acting and auditions as well, and then doing the podcast. Did you ever feel like you had hit a point where you took too much on your plate? Or was it just give me more and keep it coming so I can keep learning the craft? <laughs> well, I didn't, you know, I didn't get into voice acting until 1993 when I broke in, mm-hmm. you know, through, through Chuck E. Cheese. And so I still at the time in all those formative years and so forth, for me, I think I was so enthralled with the journey itself. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, part of it is self-discovery, of course, too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you're, you're learning so I mean, you're going to study acting. You're going to, if you're going to study any discipline, any art, you're going to learn more about yourself in the oh, process, yeah. of course, uh, especially if, if you're what you know we call an honest artist. I mean, you put your heart into your work. You know, you draw from the gut. You know, whether it's with pencil or whether it's with words on a stage and very true, you're singing and so forth. You're you're pulling from your experiences, your inmost being, and so forth. That journey is very it's very consuming. It can be very healing. It can be very liberating because you're getting to express so many things, you, you know, the, your hidden emotions or, or fears, joys and, and great remembrances and so forth, aspirations for the future, all that kind of stuff. And I think I was just always, number one, it was just about the journey itself. Mm-hmm. I'll say this because I don't want to sound like a saint because I wasn't. At the same time, you know, I was very selfish. Um, you know, I, I wasn't saved. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And so it was... Part of that self journey was, you know, was also narcissistic in some way too. But there were, but the pure aspect is what I always came back back to of just the craft itself, the beauty of it, its history mm-hmm. goes so far back, you know, oh, yeah. all the way back to, to to ancient Greece and so forth, and then coming into Europe, it's it's thriving in the Renaissance period, and then forward and and. Then all the the history, the rich history we have in cinema here in America, we talk about living. You know, we laugh and talk about living the dream. Yep. I was living the moment. I was enjoying and savoring each experience and each new craft, each new skill that I was learning. I was just sucking the marrow out of that bone, man. Absolutely. To live it to the full and just test the breadth of what this. And, you know, and I believed in God at the time, but I didn't have that vision of, okay, this gift has been given to me for a purpose and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to test the boundaries of it. The you know, How much do I have inside of me? What what else can I do? So it right. wasn't a thing of, uh, I don't want to do too much. It was, well, what else can I do? If I can do this, well, maybe I can do that. So it was more of an exploration than it was of going, oh, I've taken too much on something like that, I think. Absolutely. And I, I love that answer too. And I love too, that you weren't focused on the destination. The focus was always on the journey and just enjoying that process of it, because I'm, I'm guilty of looking at the finish line more than I am the steps and the journey to get there. So I, I love hearing that. But what was it like when you got your first casting, whether it was something on screen or for voiceover, what was that process like? And how did that kind of affect your mindset going forward with, you know, more castings and auditions from there? I'll, I'll, I'll share two stories here. So the first thing that I actually auditioned for mm-hmm. movie, movie-wise was Born on the Fourth of July with Tom Cruise. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, uh, it was back when Oliver Stone was doing the casting here in Dallas and so forth. I didn't have any representation at the time. And I just remember hearing about it through mm-hmm. a friend in school. We were It was my senior year. Uh, in high school, and we had an amazing drama teacher. That's a story in and of itself, David Hall. He had so much respect for the craft, so much skill, and poured so much into us that year. At the end of that year, I mean, it just, there was so much growth. Um, we were trained in non-regional dialect. We took our our UIL play all the way to uh, state finals that year in Austin for the first time, and I was part of the Birdville Independent School District. Um, wow. So the first time in history we took it there. I mean, and we were the first to go to state for anything in Birdville. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, our football team hadn't gone. Nobody had gone and so forth. So, so it was like, yeah, stick that. So y'all led the way. And all of that. But the journey of finding those gifts and continuing to, to push the boundaries as far as I could led into that audition. And um, when I got out there into Dallas that day and so forth, I had a read and so forth. And it went good and so forth. And then they were kind of doing this post interview mm-hmm. going and they said, do you have any, uh, any wrestling experience? Little did I know, you know, there was going to be a wrestling scene. Of course, I did not have any wrestling experience. I was honest with him. I wasn't going to tell him, you know, no. And then, you know, get in there and get an arm broken or something. Right. Like right. You know, um, Hey, you said you could wrestle. Um, how come you're laying there bleeding? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and especially with somebody as physical as Tom Cruise, right? Oh yeah. But, but I, uh, I, I didn't, and so I said no, I, and the casting director said, well, this, this part definitely has to have somebody who has that skill set, and I do remember at that time with that thought thinking, you know what, that won't happen again. I will go and I'll I'll get experience in that. I love and it. So forth. So there was definitely some milestone moments like that where there was a purposing of going, okay, I missed an opportunity because I didn't have something that they needed and so forth. So I'll go and I'll get some more exposure somewhere else where I can. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think I've always had going for me is just a willingness to learn from anybody. Absolutely. I think if you just have a good dose of humility, a good mm-hmm. dose of self-honesty and humility that you're willing to learn from people, recognize their gifts and their knowledge and their experience. If they're, if they're good at something, shut up and listen. Exactly. <laughs> the old saying, shut up and listen. You might learn something, son. Um, that's very that's, true. Very true. That's, that's what I was about. And so that just kept me pressing forward. I love it. How did you actually get the Chuck E. Cheese booking? Cause I know you referenced that a minute ago. How did that come into your lap? Right. So I was, uh, I was working in, it was in 1992, I guess. And I was working out at Six Flags Over Texas, mm-hmm. auditioned uh, for the Crazy Horse Saloon Show, which is the Western show. The yep. country, country Western show out there, Pilgrim. <laughs> and it's a song and dance show. Mm-hmm. And I had, done, I had done musical review work, a ton of that in college. So here was an opportunity to continue plying the trade. Right. You want to try to stay in it as much as you can. And then, hey, if you can make some money at it, <laughs> why not? Do it. Do it. <laughs> and I was still living at home at the time and saving money and so forth. My dad was like, yeah, I think you ought to do it, son. And so I went out, auditioned, I landed and uh, was enjoying that show. And some friends of mine that I had done college with, they were in the Looney Tunes show out at Six Flags. They were doing the walk around characters, Bugs mm-hmm. Bunny, Daddy Duck, so on. And they got wind that uh, Chuck E. Cheese was doing a franchise convention in Phoenix, Arizona, and they needed people to do the walk-around characters. And they needed those people to dance in costume. They needed to be strong. They needed to be physical. They needed to be in good shape uh, and so forth. It was going to be a tough show. Mm -hmm. All of us, of course, were just in our physical prime. So we went and we auditioned, and we nailed it. And uh, they brought us in, and they flew us out to Phoenix, Arizona, it was another one of those milestone moments. Uh, I remember the three of us, Jeremy uh, and Robert, two of the guys that, that led me to the Lord, uh, by the way, also. We all went out there and, and we're having a great time. And we were riding around one day in a rental car. Mm-hmm. And in the back seat, there was one of those old stupid plastic echo microphones that you can buy at like the little ticket counter at Chuck E. Cheese's. Yeah. They just pop it into and has the little echo sound to it and so forth. <laughs> 
And we had, there was a whole bunch of, it was just Chuck E. Cheese memorabilia in the back seat of this car, of course. I, I picked it up and I started talking into it. And I was impersonating the voice of Chuck E. Cheese at the time, which was Scott Wilson. He had a real cool vaudeville sound to him. I always loved Scott's, uh, Scott's voice for that role and so forth. And he had such a great personality behind it. And he was a really cool artist, great director too. And I was impersonating him and Jeremy and Robert just kind of did a double take with each other for a second. And they went, man, that's good. You ought to think of auditioning. And I, and I was like, what do you mean auditioning? Scott's, Scott's doing it and, you know, and we're doing this and all that. And they were like, no, well, word is that they're starting to look for somebody else. And I was like, really? Why? I was like, Scott's amazing. I was like, well, they, they, they need a guy who can sing. Scott, Scott can't sing that well. And they need a guy you know, who can give this more kind of mainstream sound. They're looking to go mainstream. They want him to sound friendlier and younger and more kid-friendly, all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff, less gravel and so forth. And I was like, hmm, okay. I'll pray about it. And so, you know, I did. I prayed about it. And after about a week, I felt kind of like I had a green light with God. And I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a demo. I didn't have money for a demo. But Jeremy and Robert and I, we were also in a band together. Mm -hmm. And so we did have sound equipment. Right. Use what tools you can, right? Absolutely. So, so I went out into the garage. And again, I'm dating myself. I put a cassette in. <laughs> <laughs> and recorded myself doing that voice nine ways to Sunday and going, here's what Chuck E. Cheese would sound like with less gravel, with some more gravel. And when I say gravel, obviously I'm talking about that, <clears throat> that, yeah. you know, that, that grind there and so forth on the chords uh, that we all come to know and love as voice actors mm -hmm. until the next morning. And, and with less New Jersey, more New Jersey accent and so forth. And then I did, you know, a, a handful of songs. Here's what he'd sound like singing uh, a Route 66. That was one of the songs that they wanted to do. So I did some of that and did a couple of others. I tried to give them and show them as much scope within a few minutes as I possibly could mm -hmm. and show them that how they could expand the borders of this character. I, I was blessed enough to catch the vision. I saw what they were doing and where they were going. It was definitely God's blessing. And put the tape together, sent it out, and this is the really cool part. So this is two weeks later now. Robert and I um, were uh, spending some time together that day. We had a Bible study going on. It was just him and me at this moment. Literally, we were just we were talking. We had been praying. We had been looking at some scripture and stuff like that. And he stopped, and he just looked up at me. And he said, I have a word from God for you. And I was like, really? And Robert, Robert was always a guy who was very attuned in his walk with the Lord and so forth. So if he said something like that, you knew he wasn't joking around. Absolutely. I said, all right, man, lay it on me. And he said, God's telling me that you're going to get this part. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. And this is where I get emotional about it because he said, God sees your heart. And he sees now because I'd gotten saved here at this point, And I had totally set the gift aside. Mm -hmm. And I was 100% about my walk with Christ. And if he if he opened up an opportunity, I was fine with that. Yeah. But I didn't want to be the star anymore. I didn't want to be the glory and the lights. And it wasn't about me anymore, right? Mm -hmm. There this really dynamic heart change. I looked at him and said, man, I said, that's awesome. He said, but he said, God sees your heart. And he's going to open this door. And it's going to lead to many opportunities for you to witness to people. He's going to lead you into the industry, in fact. And I was just like. Wow. I guess we'll see if that's a true word or not, won't we? Right. Sure, sure enough, it was about a week or so later, I got a call out of the blue, and it was a, a vice president and then the director of entertainment on the phone from Chuck E. Cheese. 
and both of them on the phone together and they just said, Hey Duncan, we, uh, we're really excited to talk to you. We've listened to all these tapes and so forth. And man, we just, we love yours and we love the ideas and all the vision that you have and so forth. And, and we'd like to offer you the job. And I was beside myself. I mean, I just started shouting on the phone. I was, I was right. literally screaming in the living room and so forth and, and, and just going, man, I'm so excited. Man, God spoke to me about it through a friend. And we were, man, we're staying, it's going to be cool. And just gave me a vision for it and stuff. And I mean, they're just kind of like, okay, yeah, that's great, man. We're glad you're excited about it. <laughs> we don't know what we're getting into. That was the beginning, right? And. Mm-hmm. What was even cooler about that as time went forward, that entertainment director, David Robinson was his name. We ended up leading him to the Lord. And then that vice president on the phone, Gene Cram, we ended up leading him to the Lord as well. That is amazing. Yeah. And so that was the whole start. And then that's how I met Bob West, who was doing Barney. Bob was two of the other characters. He was Pasquale and Mm -hmm. Jasper T. Jowls. And so that's how we met, and that's how that segued into that next area of my life and so forth. So you talk about God leading your paths and destiny and all of that. I, I'm, I'm right there with my hand in the air testifying, brother. It's Absolutely. It's <laughs> and I, I, I can feel your the energy, the enthusiasm. I can feel every bit of that just – and I can see it on your face even though, like, the audience obviously isn't going to see the camera. But, like, you can tell, like – how impactful and how important this is to you and it's awesome to see like it's contagious because it's got i've got goosebumps through all this it's it's so powerful but i've got two questions that i would be remiss to not ask one we'll do this one first because the other one is probably going to be a backtrack a little bit with guys like scott and bob where you are taking over their position as that voice or you're as a a stand-in or an alternate for them were there any conversations? Was there any tension, especially from somebody like Scott, where you were taking that position? Did he understand? Or because I know, like, there's mixed feelings with certain actors. You know, if somebody sure. replaces them, or for the person yeah. that is replacing them. So, what was your experience like with that? A really good question. Funny enough, I heard Daniel Craig actually speaking about the next actor becoming the next Bond mm-hmm. after him. He was he was saying the other day that there'd probably be a, a, a bit of bittersweetness to that. Yeah. So, so with Scott Wilson, um, when I was stepping in as Chuck E. Cheese, I have to say Scott was a class act. I never heard a, a, a bitter word, a bad word out of his mouth uh, with me or, or, or anything else. That's awesome um, to hear. He was a professional. I, I don't know how his conversations went with, with Gene Cram or some of the other right. guys were, because they were facilitating the change. He was always cool to me. And he had actually given me, and I will back the train up just a second there, because he had actually given me my very first acting job just before Chuck E. Cheese, when he was still doing it, I had done the voice of Larry the Technician for him. I introduced this really whimsical, hey Chucky, Uh I'm just fixing the stuff here in the back room, okay? Uh, Oh, that's electricity. That hurt. Uh, uh, (laughs) That was the first character, so that would have been my first interaction. So Scott and I knew each other pretty well at this point. We weren't like great friends or anything. Mm But he was always just a class act, and so he was great with the transition as far as with me. And then with Bob, he was still staying with the company when they brought me on. I was just the trailer. I was an add-on. The pretense of bringing me into the picture of Barney when I came into it was they wanted to send him off to Montreal, uh, Quebec, Canada there to to record the movie, the Barney movie. Okay. And they were going to have me and then Josh Martin. That name oh, yeah. Spell. 
Um, yeah, because I ended up doing a little bit of work with him later on that you're familiar oh, with. We'll get to that, too. <laughs> he was Josh was the Barney suit coming in to take David Joyner's place in the suit. And he and Josh and I, we held down the PBS series while Bob and Dave went off to, to Montreal to record that. So there was never any transition there that we had to navigate. I will say this for Bob, though. Bob was gracious enough to recognize my greenness in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the guy who would clear his throat in the microphone, you know, and drive yeah. the engineer crazy. You know, I just had no microphone etiquette, you know. I, I was so raw and so forth. And, and he would pull me aside and go, stop doing that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he would just give me those helpful tips and things like that. And the other thing I'll, I'll say about Bob, Bob saved my keister one time. We had been down in Florida to record when uh, Chuck E. Cheese uh, uh, got Disney to produce one of the videos for us. And uh, so they flew us down there to record and uh, Bob's doing his voices. I'm doing mine and so forth. And we were leaving to come back to DFW and I left my plane ticket in the hotel. Oh no. And there was no way we were going to have time. Oh no. And so Bob walked up to the ticket counter and just dumped a whole bunch of flyer points to buy me a ticket and walked back to me and put it in my hand. I mean, I, I, I didn't have a lot of money and I was just like, dude, are you serious? And he said, absolutely. And I, I never forgot that. That was when I got to see the heart of Bob West. Bob's golden that way. And when you talk about that guy giving you the shirt off his back, there's there's, the, there's an example. Absolutely. And so I'm grateful that I, I never had to, to navigate what I have seen some other people do, mm-hmm. at least in, in that regard. When I was going to Barney, though, uh, and segueing into the job, there was some of that that I experienced from the producer and, and vice president there at, at Chuck E. Cheese. I had gone to him and said, hey, you know, I've got this opportunity, and so I'd like to keep doing the voice of Chucky, and they're opening this door up to me, and so there'll be plenty of time to keep recording and so forth. And he, he told me to my face, he said, yeah, absolutely, we'll just keep going, and it'll be great and all that kind of stuff. And literally within a week, he canned me. For a, for a very short period, I was just astonished because, again, this was a guy that we had led led to Christ and and so forth. So I was like, that's not very Christ-like. Yeah. <laughs> and so, needless to say, I had to work some, through some forgiveness and so forth. Right. But that was probably one of the only instances I think that I've ever had to deal with that. And it it took a short period, but you know, we we were friends again and all that kind of stuff. So. I'm glad to hear that. That leads into my other question, which. If you're comfortable with it, would you mind telling us the story and kind of walk us up to what led you being saved? Absolutely. So I didn't have any kind of Christian background growing up. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad, mom had some background in it herself, but she had left her faith when she was old enough to leave the house. She left her faith there too. And so, and she later met my dad and married, had me and my little brother. And she had had a previous marriage with him and had my two older half brothers. All that to say, though, it was unchristian. We were a very pagan house. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and we were a very American house. We were baseball, foot, you know, football, you know, hot dogs, apple pie, Chevrolet was the saying, I think. Yeah. But I, my only exposure to the gospel as a kid was my grandmother, first of all, mom's mom, Mm -hmm. still very much in the picture. And man, she was a matriarch. I mean, you talk about a faith like Sarah. She was just a mother in the faith. She had been a school teacher um, in her earlier years and had become a Sunday school teacher later on and taught for many, many years. So, man, she knew her Bible. And my mother's other two siblings, two brothers, 
one of them had become a preacher and then one of them had become a chief of police, but he was also a chaplain. Mm-hmm. So they had a pretty strong faith there in, in her side of the family. So when we would go to visit grandma, grandma was very vocal just about her relation and not in a pretentious way, but just a very real way. Right. You knew her faith was real. You knew that she wasn't messing around. And when she prayed, because we were going to have a meal or whatever, or we got together for a celebration, holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and so forth. And you heard Grandma pray, man. You knew she was talking. She was she was talking to the man. She was talking to God. It was not make believe. It wasn't fake. It was you felt a presence in the room. You felt a power at work, and that made an impression on me. Even from a kid, I cannot look back. I think maybe because of my grandma more than anybody else, I can't look back as a kid and go, you know, there was a time I didn't believe in God. Right. So that was very, very real. But nevertheless, we weren't a saved house. And so we didn't go to church regularly. The only other exposure that I got to the gospel was visiting my older half brother's grandparents. They were saved. And so I could probably count on maybe one hand the number of times that I got to go to Sunday school. Yeah. when, When I was a kid. But I can tell you this, this is a sad part. I never remember hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. We were taught, we were taught to learn the books of the Bible. We had drills and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I learned the books of the Bible. I was a good kid, and I got my little star and my ribbon for all that and, and so forth. But I never had a chance to make that decision. How I wish that I, that I would have, because I would have avoided a lot of pain that I experienced in college years. It was my final year in uh, junior college. At the time, it was one of those instances where your life is just ripe as far as the ground being fertile yeah. for you to open to the message of Christ, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, You see your calling, brothers, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty in this world are called, but God uses the base things, the poor things, the things which are despised. The scripture is really talking about how people aren't going to generally be open to the message of faith unless their heart's in a humble place. Mm-hmm. You know, all too, all too often we're so proud and we're so full of ourselves and life's going really well. We're, you know, we're living the dream and we're so we're self-satisfied. It's not until we start experiencing some suffering and some need and are faced with mortality in some way, perhaps that we begin to see that need for God and ask, start asking those questions. And so, that final year, uh, my parents had been uh, separated twice and were now divorced. That devastated me. Devastated Understandable. Family, ripped a huge hole in us. Um, so I had a lot of tough time dealing with that. It also sent my mom into an alcoholism spiral. And so we saw that, and there was a lot of abuse that happened in my life at that time as well. And so there was a great deal of emotional pain mm-hmm. and just emptiness that I felt because I had this personal life that was a shambles. And then I had the beauty of the art and the craft that I was learning here on the other. Consequently, I think part of my salvation before my salvation <laughs> was having an out where I could take that emotional pain on the stage. Right. And I could vent it in positive ways and I could pour that passion and hurt into my roles and so forth. I, I can definitely tell you that I poured out a lot of it in Hamlet when I did that. Ooh, I can and only I, imagine. I was blessed enough to have a director who saw it too. He knew what was going on behind the scenes and he could see how I was definitely living in the moment in that. And that was, had become an escape for me. So all that to say though, I was ready to hear the message and these friends that I mentioned earlier, Jeremy, Robert, and so forth. I hadn't seen, um, seen them in a few months. 
Jeremy, I had known Jeremy before he was a Christian. He was smoking two packs of camels a day. He was a drinker. He was a womanizer Ooh. like me uh, and so forth. So, you know, we, we were good sinners, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, were finishing the run of Hamlet. I left the uh, college that night and his apartment or his girlfriend's apartment was just about a mile up the road. And I was like, I'm going to go see them. I'm going to find out what's going on. Why, why, why isn't he around? And so I, I took a walk up there, and I got to the door, and I could hear talking and stuff going on inside. And, and I knocked, and nobody answered. And so I knocked again. Nobody answered. I knocked a third time. Nobody answered. I was like, what is the deal? And so finally, I just opened the door and walked in, which we always did. And so I walked in, and I walked into a prayer meeting. Oh, and Jeremy and Robert and Jeff and these other guys, I mean, they were on the floor. Man, I mean, they were praying like till the cows came home. They didn't even know I had walked in the room. That's how much prayer and wow. energy and passion and presence was in that room. And I was just like, whoa, what in the world is going on? My heathen friends. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm over here in the pagan section and wow, what's going on over there? Right. And, I'm watching them, and instantly, there's a, a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that I always go back to here. Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he's talking about the gift of prophecy, about being able to speak from God, to be able to speak future events, other things like that, but just basically speak messages from them. And he talks about how, he said, if somebody manifests that gift in your in, among those who don't know the Lord, they'll say, of a truth, God is in this place. And I'm listening to these guys. Now, again, they're not preaching. They're just praying. But again, just like my grandmother, it was like, dude, I knew they were talking. It was not words in the air. I could sense a tangible presence in the room. And it was powerful. Mm -hmm. It was convicting. And it was real as the hairs that were standing up on the back of my neck and my arm. I had never felt anything so powerful. And literally, they were still praying, and I was so convicted. I literally got on my face and was just covering my face and my hands to the carpet, man. I was just, man, what is this? I felt exposed. I felt naked. I just felt, man, what is this? And finally, they finished praying, realized that I was there, and they were like, dude, so good to see you. And one by one, they all start telling me, hey, man, I'm, we're saved, and we started a band, and, and all this kind of stuff in the same band that I became a part of. Mm -hmm. one, they said, hey, you want to hear some of our music? And I was like, sure. And so they start sharing some of this music, and the music was just jam-packed with scripture after scripture after scripture. Wow. And I mean, I mean, it, it literally it was just like the Psalms put to music. It was just coming to life. Again, I'd never heard anything like this in my life. I guess at, at this moment, I had the blessing of being a very good pagan, and I saw instantly this stark contrast that I'm confronted with of not just the culture of music, not just a whole this whole different way of life, but this magnificent presence that I felt moving within the music. The music was alive. That's all I can say. It was alive. There was something in it that I didn't hear when I listened to Journey and when I listened to Boston and when I listened to Van Halen, all the groups that I loved that mm -hmm. were amazing artists, right? Because we still love that to this day. Yeah. But there was something in their music that I felt that was touching me in my heart that, that hadn't hit me. And I get could it. see God was working on me and... They finished, they played an entire set. 
and dude, it was like I got hosed with a fire hose or something. I was just, (laughs) and they said, Hey, would you hang out here just for a second? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why? We just need to go outside. We just got to talk about something real quick and uh, we'll, we'll just be right back. Okay. Of course, they're all going outside, and they, you know they're going. Okay, who's going to talk to them about Jesus? You know, <laughs> they were all kind of going back and forth, him hawing about who is going to, you know, ask the words and so forth. While I was inside, and while I'm inside alone, I'm still feeling this presence in this room. Literally, it was like somebody. It was like a giant set of eyes peeking over the top of the wall, looking at. Me. It was just like somebody staring at me. Man, I was literally pacing back and forth. I was nervous. I was like, man, why am I? listless and so forth but at the same time there was this amazing peace yeah it was such a dichotomy anyway the door opens and jeremy's standing there with this goofy look on his face hey man he said we're sitting out in the back of my pickup truck we're just talking you want to you want to come out and i was like yeah beats being in here by myself (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) so now one more insertion here Mm -hmm. i walk out and I hop into the bed of his pickup truck. The, he had a Nissan, tan Nissan hard body pickup truck. All of them are sitting in it. And so I hop into the back of this thing with him. And we're all just sitting here in the bed of this pickup truck. It's a beautiful night. Uh, it's probably about one or two in the morning at this point. I hop into the back of the bed of this pickup truck. And instantly I was like, what in the world? I have seen this before. I've seen this. I've seen this place. And about a month before this, I had already at this point, I had started praying. I had a, mm-hmm. little pocket, a little pocket Gideon's New Testament that had been given to me by the Baptist Student Union that semester. I had gotten it when I registered for my classes that final time. And there was a guy standing at the end of the line just handing these out to everybody. And I had actually started reading mine because of all the garbage going on in my life. I would go at the end of the night when I couldn't sleep and I was lying awake at night just feeling terrible about all the stuff going on in my life, I opened that Bible one night and I started looking up the index of where it talked about anxiety or depression and other things. And it would take you to verses and to Psalms and to Matthew and to other places in the New Testament. I was reading these verses. And that prompted one one night before I went to bed, it prompted a conversation with God, a very honest one. I just, as I was kneeling in bed, uh, kneeling beside the bed one night, I just went, God, I believe that you're real. I always have for as long as I can remember. I believe there's a heaven and I believe that there's a hell. And I believe that I would go to that ladder one right now if I died. But I don't understand who this Jesus is. I have friends in class who talk about him and I don't know who that is. And they talk about him like he's real. Anytime a thing is mentioned, I, I noticed that there were people who either got really upset or really excited. I could see that difference between the friends that I had. And I said, so will you tell me who Jesus is? And I said, finished that prayer and went to bed and I had a dream. And in this dream, I saw, as I learned later on, after I had gotten saved and started reading the Bible, I saw the rapture of the church. I saw Jesus appear in clouds of glory, like the scripture talks about in first Corinthians 15 and first Thessalonians chapter five. I saw this amazing moment where Jesus had come back and I was in that dream and I was standing beside that truck that I had just hopped into the back of that night. So that's where I'd seen that truck before. 
I had never seen that vehicle before. I hadn't seen Jeremy in months. And so now come back to the story. I hop in the back of this truck and Jeremy and Robert, Michael, Jeff, Shay, they all start going down the road and they start sharing testimony with me. And they're telling me these, these amazingly beautiful stories of how Jeremy had smoked to Mike it had a problem with porn and Shay had drug issues and stuff. And there was just all this deep stuff and how God had moved in their history and moved in their life and had broken these addictions, had broken these cycles, these chains, these things that were destroying them. I had seen these guys do bad stuff and I'd seen the destructive places that it had in their life and so forth. And I knew at that moment when they were looking at me, this was, they were not blowing smoke. Yeah. And I could see the change on their face and I could hear it in their words. And it was so powerful. And finally, as it came back around and Shay was the last one talking to me, I had known Shay since junior high, back when he was just a scrawny break dancing kid. You know? mm-hmm. Here he was, this really talented artist now and playing keys for this band and so forth. And he reached over and he took my hand. It was like my grandma's hand when she grabbed you, dude. It was just like, whoa, that's powerful. And he looked into my face, stared right into my eyes, and he said, Duncan, Jesus Christ loves you. He bled for you. He died for you. His body was broken for your sin. He was nailed to that cross so that your sins could be nailed there with him. Everything that you've ever done wrong, every bad thing that you've ever said or done, nailed to that cross with him so that when he rose— from the dead, you could have new life if you believe in him. And he held up my hand right in front of my face and he said, Duncan, you could never hold hands with anybody better than Jesus. That's the truth. And like I'm starting to break right now, I broke mm-hmm. in and I broke hard. I broke and I wept like like a dam breaking. I, I literally cried so hard I couldn't talk. I was just a shambles, just a mess in the middle of this pickup bed. Prayed so hard I couldn't even repeat the sinner's prayer with them. My friends put a hand on me and they just started asking Jesus to come into my life, asking Jesus to save me. And all I could do was just cry and nod and agree and snot and everything. I was just, <laughs> yeah, I need you. That was the morning of April the 13th, 1991. So powerful. Man, that's powerful. Never been the same since. So, because I know like in today's day and age, and we'll we'll circle back to this when we get closer uh, to the conversation about your ministry work and your book. Since you were saved in the industry and just in life in general, where people kind of walk a fine line where you can have those religious and have those spiritual conversations with them or you can't or they're easily offended or they just don't want to hear it. How do you navigate those situations or do you feel like that makes people look at you in a different light for attempting to have that conversation or being that example of how Christ, you know, like being his light in the world? Sure. I think one, it behooves us as witnesses to try and be aware of where God has somebody mm-hmm. in their journey. Everybody has their own journey, period. Absolutely. Your journey is not my journey. Mine's not yours. Mine is not theirs. Theirs is not mine. And we all have a have our own accountability before God as well. And so with that said, part of the thing that I think can take the pressure off of, of being a witness for Christ is, look, is, go, is going, look, it's not up to you to get them over the quote, the quote, the goal line. Mm-hmm. That's not your job. Your job is to try and listen to God and what he's telling you in that moment and be an open witness, a bold witness. Obviously, it it does take boldness to talk about your faith and so forth. But to also recognize where they might be 
in terms of their receptivity at times. There's times where certainly that you speak and you tell the story, period, regardless. But I think if we also look into the Gospels, if we look at the conversations of Jesus as he is calling the disciples, right? He walks up to Peter, that Andrew is the one who's given the handshake here, and he calls Peter and so forth. But when he goes over and he meets Nathaniel, Nathaniel is already skeptical. He's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> you know, and he's like, hey, I saw you under the under the, the, the tree before before you ever ever even knew you know, ever even knew me. So he has these these conversations though, where he meets them clearly at the different places where they're at. You know, Matthew when he called Matthew was Matthew was at the at the receipt of custom there collecting taxes when Jesus walked up to him one day boldly and said, "Come and follow me." He got up. And he followed Jesus, and then the next thing you know, they're having, they're sitting down having dinner. And as they're having dinner, Jesus begins to unfold more about who he is, what he's going to be doing. And so I think we have to recognize the power of a conversation. Absolutely. At night, those guys were willing to take time and share their life, mm-hmm. share their experience. They were willing to open things up and talk honestly and let me wrestle with and answer questions and things like that and so forth. At the same time, it was very much an invitation. It wasn't a pressure. They weren't like, you need to get saved and so forth like that and and pressuring me. They could see that God was working on my heart and I was genuinely interested. I wanted to hear that message and so forth. So I think it does behoove us again as, as witnesses to try and be discerning and aware of the Holy Spirit's work on somebody's life. And our job is to come along and meet God in that place to whether it's to plant seed, whether it's to water or whether it's to swing the sickle. Remember, that's what Paul said also. At, I think it's the beginning of second Corinthians where mm-hmm. he talks about, he says, I plant, no, it's first Corinthians. I'm sorry. But he says, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so he even recognizes there. He said, look, I came along and I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. Okay. So he recognizes, even the apostles themselves, these amazing men of faith who did signs and wonders uh, and so forth that some of us will never even see or only dream about or only read about, they were aware of that also. If you read the book of Acts, they were very much aware of the moment Mm -hmm. and very much aware of the importance of just the conversation. Being a witness, it just means telling the story. That's it. You tell people about what you have experienced, what you have seen, and what you have heard. That's what we're supposed to be, witnesses of what we have both seen and heard. Absolutely. And if we start there, we can have a conversation. And you're sensitive. You know, I've had had lots of opportunities over the years to witness, to plant a seed, and and to reap, uh, too. But I think that there were times as I was getting older and more mature in my faith that I was definitely more working with God versus working against him even, mm-hmm. by being sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, Jesus told us in those chapters, John 14 through 16. Our job is just to share the message. Absolutely. And I think and that's the best explanation I've heard about that type of scenario, because I know it's something that I've actually had conversations with uh, with my small group leader about at church, where it's like, 
in today's day and age, so many people, you have to walk that fine line because you don't want to be reported to HR for just telling somebody that I'll be praying for you or inviting them to church. So, I mean, like that explanation right there made a bigger impact on me than you might not even realize. But like, I just, I love that answer. And it's, it's so simple, but it's so profound and so powerful. I think it is important too. Like I said, just the same way I was continuing to add to my skill set in acting and so mm-hmm. forth. I took that same that same mindset into my faith, and I began to memorize scripture. You know, I was serious about prayer and so forth. Later on, when I was exposed to apologetics, I started memorizing uh, basic evidences of the faith and so forth. And so, I think it's important to quote unquote build a toolbox. Yes. That the Holy Spirit can work with, you know, He says in First Peter uh, chapter three and verse fifteen in the New Testament, He says, "But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense of the faith, um, a defense for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect." So, tells us about the gentleness and respect part, really important there. But He also tells us to be ready to give a defense of the faith. And the word, the Greek word there, apologia, it was literally a witness giving testimony in court. And when you do that, what do you do? You talk about what you've seen and heard. Yep. And then you share evidence. And I made it a point to just learn some basic evidences of the faith so that if somebody has, wasn't the Bible just put together, just ripped apart and then put back together by all these people and so forth. There's so much of what we believe in pop culture about mm-hmm. Jesus, about the scripture that's that's absolutely rooted in fabrication and myth. And part of our job there in our witness is to be able to to take some of those evidences and say, well, actually, that's not true. Let me walk you through how the manuscripts were formed that the scripture is based upon. Right. Let me walk you through some of, the, some of the amazing scientific data that you can see in scripture. Just share some of those different evidences. And again, plant seeds. And then let people weigh it themselves and decide... That's Holy Spirit's working on. Absolutely. And we're going to come back to that here. And I don't really know another way to, or a smoother way to transition to the next part of the journey, but it's going to lead into your ministry work now. But just because you mentioned Josh Martin earlier, who is someone I would love to have as a guest on here down the road, uh, you got to work with him. And then also, too, you got to work with someone whose episode actually dropped today as we're recording, Rick Robertson. How did you get involved with Funimation and get involved with the Dragon Ball franchise and the different anime franchises that you worked on as well? How did that part of your journey come to be? So literally, Chuck E. Cheese, Barney, and then Funimation, the three biggest gigs that I ever landed were all landed without an agent and without a demo. That's impressive. Well, that's calling is what that is. Yes, sir. And I go, man, God had a plan. So Chuck E. Cheese wanted, um, just the same way they had hired Disney to record some of our videos, they decided at one point that they had wanted to uh, make a home video release. Mm-hmm. And they were going to release in their restaurants. They were going to do the uh, Chuck E. Cheese and the Galaxy 5000 is what they were going to make. That's what it was. <laughs> the race. And that thing has a cult following all its own. That is True story. Talk about things taking on a life of their own. <laughs> They hired Funimation. Our marketing team hired Funimation to produce that video. Wow. I was in on that. At that point, I had done. I had been working at the home office with Chuck E. Cheese also. Mm-hmm. And I had helped do a lot of the, uh, the production work. I was a PA and I, I was a prop builder and so forth and done some of that stuff. Anyway, when it came time to record the voice work for it, 
they brought me in. And Funimation at this time, now they're in these huge warehouse size, you know, studio yeah. facilities and so forth. They're just like, good grief. You know, it's a mall. It's like Walmart for recording. <laughs> <laughs> and this is back when they kind of, you know, they, they had their early days just like Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers did it with Termite Terrace. They had this one just little spot right up there in a bank building yep. at the corner of Rue Snow and Loop 820. They were up there on the second or third floor. When I had gone to record, they only had like two rooms at the time. So, that, I mean, it was just, just cranking up, just getting underway. It was July. The year is going to escape me. This is in the 90s, though. I can tell you that. It's, it's in the middle of, of, of summer, dead heat, and uh, we've got to go and record these voices and, and, and drop uh, recording for, for the script. So... I go up there and, and I arrive and so forth. And uh, I walk in the building and I'm like, man, it sure is hot in here too. It's going, I don't think they have any AC in this building. It, uh, it's like 102 outside and so forth. Good old Texas heat. Yeah. And I go upstairs and so forth. And I walk into the, to the suite there. And the sweet, I mean, we say sweet because that's what we call it in the industry. It's not sweet. (laughs) It's it's a wreck, man. I mean, just recording equipment's everywhere and a whisper booth over here. And they've got a fan over here, you know, aimed at the whisper booth. And then they've got this big old igloo filled with water and all this kind of stuff. And they're all sweating. Oh, boy. And I'm like, hmm. So what's going on? And then the moment I get there, Chris Sabbath is is there, mm-hmm. and Barry Watson is producing at the time, and so forth, and all of them are apologizing, shaking my hands. Hey man, it's so good to see you. It's so nice to meet you. Really thrilled, man. Just we love Chuck E. Cheese and all that kind of stuff. They were so ecstatic about getting the project, but all apologizing because man, we don't have any AC. We hope that you will still record and stuff. I mean, they're just so humble. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, of course we're going to record and stuff. We start recording for the spot and. While we're in the middle of it, I mean, it is, again, 102 outside, probably 103 in the building, and it's about 110 in that doggone whisper booth. It was like a, a sauna. And I mean, literally, we would open the door between takes, and I mean, it was literally steam pouring out. Oh, into man. The, I, I kid you not. And they would put the, the fan up into the booth to cool it off. And they would have literally a couple of bottles of Ozarka right there. And I was just downing them as fast as I could. Yeah. We were, we were burning up. And again, every time I opened the door, they're like, so sorry, man. This is so unprofessional, man. Oh, we, we hope you won't you know, speak bad about us to marketing and all this kind of stuff. It was just it's so, so great. I remembered, again, you talk about how important your faith can be in moments like this. Mm-hmm. I remember praying, you know, before. I, I, I would always pray before I went into any game put a priority on my quiet time with God and so forth. I just prayed, you know, God help me be a good witness today and all that and so forth. So I prayed up and I just looked at the guys and I was just like, Hey, don't worry about it. We'll get through this. It's going to be great. Projects can come out great. You know, just keep faith, man. And I got back in the booth and man, I mean, the magic just started. Literally I started dropping stuff in one take, one take, one take. One, I mean, just bam. And that's bam, not easy. That is bam. not easy. No. And this, yeah, this is my first. We're working with flaps. Right. First round. If that's not animated, mind you, which is harder, but it is with these remote control Chucky heads that we had that had, that had flaps. Yeah. So we're trying to, trying to match to that and so forth. And Barry Watson in the middle of the session goes, man, you are a one take wonder, dude. And of course, I'm thinking, 
man, that's G. This is Jesus. This is God's totally blessing this. I could, I see what you're doing, Lord. I'm watching. This is cool, <laughs> and all that. And so we get through with the session. We walk out, and, and everybody's shaking hands and stuff, and slapping high fives. It's a great time. And Barry Watson follows me out, and he says, "Hey, would you ever be interested in doing voice acting? You know, for anybody else besides Chuck E. Cheese? You know, or anime?" And I was like. What's an anime? You know? <laughs> I, was like, I don't know what that is. So he gives me the quick rundown of what they do and, and so forth. And uh, I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll try anything at least once. Yeah. And of course, I didn't know what door that was opening. And I walked out of that session with the name of my production company, One Take Wonder Productions. I love it. That moment with Barry Watson, and then that started the relationship. The first project they had me on was Dragon Ball Z, and I was working with Chris Sabat, and I was recording for a Sharpner. Yes, in, yep. In the, this Gohan series, and so forth. And he's the long, blonde-haired, stuck-up, narcissistic jock. Punk. Yep, total jock, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. That was my first one, and it went it went well. I, I guess because they asked me back, right? And, and then I think Boss Rabbit from Dragon Ball was was next, and then a couple of other crazy kids, and, and all of a sudden it was about three or four times in, and Bobbity was the one, and Chris was over that session as well. That's when I really got to see Chris Sabat's. You know, he's he's a great voice actor in and of himself, one hundred percent. But but he's a he's a great director too, and he just great prowess. Just he has a lot of insight. He is a, he's a very instinctive director he can really give you some good direction and so forth and he already had the personality for bobbity in mind he knew the mentality that he's looking for and so when i walked in and he started describing this character to me i mean the sparks are going off inside my head the gears are turning <laughs> and so forth and so you know it's starting to form and i'm getting the inspiration and all of that and so he said what do you think and i was like yeah, man, let's, 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 let's do it. He said, okay, let's try something. Let's go, let's go. And we're all so young back then. And we're all just, you know, so new at this and, and all that kind of stuff. But we get in and, and here we go with the magic. And I think one of the very first scenes that we actually did was the mad scientist Frankenstein scene where Boo is coming to life. Such an iconic moment in the Dragon Ball anthology, mm -hmm. right? And Agreed. also just a just a great way to get introduced to this character. Yeah. He, he's he has a personality that's larger than life, but he's about what three feet tall. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and annoying. <laughs> so get out. You know, he's he's the weird uncle at Thanksgiving. You know? <laughs> All that, but it's such a great scene. That's how I. I really sunk my teeth into Dragon Ball Z. It really is history because it just went up from there. You know, not long after that, I met Christopher Bevins. We were working on uh, Samurai 7 and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Not long after that, I met Mike McFarlane. And just started working with him and so forth. And you met all of those, so many people that are in the field now. They all started out of Funimation. Yeah, that's 100% that's true. And it's crazy to see how widespread, like you said, it's become from going to that that little corner of a bank building to what it is now and the reaches that it has worldwide. It's it's an insane change, but it's awesome to see. Uh, again, and Cindy Fuganaga had a vision. Obviously. Absolutely. And they also had a, a knack for, you know, for recognizing talent mm -hmm. 
and turning them loose. That, yes. I think, is one of the best things. And and I watched the directors turn around and do the same. Gin and Cindy were that way. They were empowering that way. So was Barry. And then the directors would get in there and they'd turn them loose. And then the directors would turn this actors loose and say, let's try this. Let's try this. You got any ideas? It was so collaborative. And I, and I think that's one of the greatest hallmarks of a good director agreed to collaborate with that director with that voice actor with that actor to bring the art to life if you're working with somebody who's who's got the goods you know got that inspiration man you work with them and you recognize it's a formative process together you're both working on the same place absolutely all ego put aside for the greater good of it that's that's the best part of it right there totally so from Funimation, then, what led you into ministry work? Like, did you have that pull towards it the entire time, or was that something that just the seed got planted and it continued to be watered in different ways until it eventually blossomed into what it is now? How did that process get going? After I got saved, I felt I felt the call to pursue God in ministry, and I also felt the call to lay down this craft. Mm-hmm. There was a time there when I wasn't acting, I wasn't doing anything. And it was humbling. It was kind of scary because this was all that I had known. Yeah. This is what I had planned on doing, right? Right. It was really learning to trust God in a lot of ways and all this kind of stuff. But I felt this call into ministry. And so our friends had the band and the drama ministry and so forth. And the first thing that I started doing with them was being a roadie. I was like, I'll serve. And I, I, you know, I wasn't high and mighty. And I was like, I don't mind. I'll, I'll, I'll run sound for you guys and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll set it up. I'll, I'll tear it down, all that kind of stuff. And they saw a preaching gift on me. Yeah. And they also saw how much I was learning. I was uh, memorizing scripture. I was doing Bible studies and so forth. And I was already leading other people to faith and so forth. So they saw an evangelistic gift. They saw a preaching gift and some other stuff. And so eventually they asked me to start preaching at, at their concerts and stuff like that. And then they finally asked me to join the band and sing with them and so forth. So that was uh, so much of the uh, of the ministry, uh, of the portion of ministry where I was cutting my teeth that way. Several years, uh, several years, I guess, into it, um, it was Barney. Right after I had landed Barney, one day my brother-in-law mm-hmm. reached out, out to me. My brother-in-law was starting a church. He was going to be taking over a church, actually, with, uh, for a friend. And they were looking for a children's pastor. They knew that I had done Chuck E. Cheese and I'd done Barney and I was great with kids and all that kind of stuff. I love kids. Knew I had a preaching gift and so forth. And they didn't have any money <laughs> to pay anybody. So, right, right. So there's that important factor also. <laughs> but, uh, but they did see a calling and they were willing to give me a chance. And, and they did. And, the first event I held for this this little church was a kids crusade, and and you know a whole bunch of kids got saved, and the, the children's ministry took off. It got on fire, man. Uh, parents were starting being being added to the church because their kids were getting excited about yeah. ministry and so forth. So it's around that time, nineteen ninety seven, and so forth, where all of that was really that that was my first church job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still you know still doing my work behind the scenes to, to pay for things and all that kind of stuff. But that was my first ministry job, right? And uh, official ministry job in the church anyway. And it just kind of dominoed on from there also. Eventually he left that place and, and started his own church. And I spent five years with my brother-in-law just being a children's pastor. I was a men's pastor at one point. 
I worked as an elder. I helped lead worship and so forth. And you, when you're doing a church plant, you do a little bit of everything. You're oh, yeah. Like a submarine crew that way. And so you do a little bit of everything. Then it just it just kept going on from there. And when I began to recognize that call and that craft, I, and finally the opportunity came back around where I was doing, I was still doing Barney. And I've got a, a great pay with Barney. Mm-hmm. And I was able, I was able to not have to charge you know, the place where I was ministering. Now I didn't have to charge them. Now I was the children's pastor at that place. At this, this next place for free because I was like, I got a salary. I'm good, you know. So yeah. don't worry about that. And then it just it went on. The the, the door opened to get some started getting some seminary training. I wanted to learn more, and I saw that there was more that I could learn, and I wanted to start getting into original language. I wanted to study Greek. I wanted to study some Hebrew. I wanted to look at explore theology and get to know history uh, of the church and all of that. And so started exploring those opportunities to places like Tyndale Seminary and all that, where you have this amazing faculty that are trained at you know, all the universities are trained in places like Dallas Seminary, which is world famous now, and so forth. But at the same time, where they're giving out an education that is affordable for people that are coming up, they were non-credited. But all the guys that are teaching these classes, they're all doctors. Every one of them, just amazing engineers of the scriptures, uh, and so forth, just to be able to sit down with these guys. And so that's where the training that I that I've used now, that I fall back on now began and all of that and so over the years now i've been in ministry since since 93 with chuck e cheese mm-hmm. that was my first children's pastor's job and but since that time i've been a children's pastor men's pastor an interim worship uh worship pastor small groups pastor family pastor there's almost any hat in the church i've worn with the exception of a senior pastor wow i've been an associate i've been everything i've been an elder and all that kind of stuff. And again, I think it is a willingness to just follow God mm-hmm. and just where the path's going and where the doors are opening and so forth and trust him and just go, God, you're the one who gives out the gifts. Absolutely. I remember early on, somebody challenged me one time and said, well, you know, not everybody has the same gifts and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I, that's true. I've read First Corinthians 12 too, brother. Not all are apostles, not all are teachers, not all are prophets, not all have these gifts and so forth. I get that at the same time. If we read through that chapter to the end of it, he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Mm-hmm. So Paul leaves that sentence as open-ended going, hey, there may be gifts that you don't have now and you need to stay open to. Mm-hmm. And I remember Jack Hayford, the pastor church on the way, Van Nuys, California. I remember hearing a message of him one time and somebody asked him, Pastor Jack, what are the best spiritual gifts that are out there? And he said, you know what the best spiritual gifts that are out there? The gifts that are needed in the moment to share the gospel, to drive the message, to be a witness in this world for Christ. And he said, if people would just stop saying, this is my gift and that's my gift and that's not my calling, blah, 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 and would just focus on sharing Christ. He said, the things that we could open ourselves up to and the way that ways that God could use us and give us a gift in a moment that yep. we've never even operated before. That Absolutely. makes such a huge impact on me. And again, so when those doors opened, I was like, yeah, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll charge hell with a water pistol, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes down to the biggest thing that I've noticed, especially in today's day and age, where 
you recognize that it's in his hands and it's not something that you have to bear or shoulder on your own, that he's with you. It's putting the human ego aside and letting him take control instead of thinking, oh, I got this, I can do it myself. And it seems like that is the most common and difficult thing to put aside. So I just hearing that part of it was, again, so powerful. Like I, I love hearing that. One of my best friends, his name is Jeff. Mm-hmm. You know, we wrestle with hearing God sometimes, you know. We talk about, as, as a Christian, you know, recognizing God's voice when it's speaking to you. Yes. And for those who may be in the audience who, who go, I, I don't, these guys are weird. We're talking about hearing God. You know, you're weird. You're, you're crazy. You need to be put in an asylum or something like that. <laughs> when we talk about hearing God, we're talking about an impression, an impression that God's trying to get your attention. I don't know anybody personally in my life that has heard an audible voice of God that way people there are people that have and there are people you know obviously in scripture that did and all that kind of stuff that said i remember having this conversation with jeff and he was like man how do you recognize god's voice when he's speaking to you now and i was like well i do remember learning years ago through a bible study called experiencing god henry blackaby did it he was talking about how do you recognize when god's speaking to you said one we go back to the scriptures the scriptures are where god has spoken Mm -hmm. what he said already and you need to get in touch with what he said already, or you can't recognize what he's saying to you right now. True right? story. It trains, it trains your voice. And so the more scripture you get inside of you, the more you can get attuned to that voice, like fine-tuning a radio station. You're going to get static until you get it right there on the decimal point, mm-hmm. and boom. And, of course, prayer. You, you stay in touch with prayer, and you, you try to deal with sin when that comes into your life, and you deal with your emotions, and you wrestle with things before God. You have those intimate, private conversations and prayer and so forth, and then you walk with, with fellow believers, people who, who know him also and who are devoted to him, and as you do life together, you start to recognize when God's speaking through somebody else. He's trying to tell you something, and vice versa. You're, you're just sharing life, and then finally— you look at circumstances. You can look at a course of your life like I did many times there, and I could see a, a definite course that it, where my life was taking shape and taking direction and so forth. So those are like four gauges, essentially. Yeah. And as Jeff and I were having that conversation one day, and I was kind of going back over all of that, I said, Jeff, here's the last thing I'll say about it. I said, at this stage in my life, I am convinced, more convinced, of God's ability to make me hear him. Versus my ability to figure out what he says. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that makes Christianity different from the other world religions. We don't look at ourselves and our own strength to try and get to God or to redeem ourselves, to deal with our sin or make a difference. We look to God and his strength. We look to God and his forgiveness. We look to Christ, his redemption. All of these things, we rely on him because in Scripture, that's what he, what he teaches. He says, this, this ain't about you, sunshine. It's about God and it's about his glory. And if we can keep it in that place where keep your eyes on him and trust him and confide in him, then the burden's not on you anymore. Right. And you're free. That's what faith really is. Uh, somebody said once, I think it was Corey Tim Boom, she said, faith is an acrostic for a fantastic adventure in trusting him. That's what faith is really about. And I love and that. I'm definitely a believer in that, and I think I can look back over the course of my life and say there's definitely been a fantastic adventure. I can agree. So in that, too, what led you to writing your book? What led you to Soldier's Code and 
how that process got started. A really great story behind that. So about 20 or so years ago now, it's a little more than that. I've always loved reading. I've always loved bookstores. I love the smell of a new book. Oh, yeah. You walk in, there's nothing like that smell. But I walked into a Barnes & Noble bookstore one day. I don't even know where I was headed. I may have been headed to the restaurant. I don't know. <laughs> but I was headed somewhere, and I just remember going by this one section and, and just feeling this strong prompting like God was trying to get my attention, just trying to pull me aside. Mm-hmm. And I followed it, thank goodness, and I ended up over here in front of the military history section and in front of a copy of Sun Tzu's classic, The Art of War. And I had heard about that book uh, before. Uh, I knew that business, you know, businessmen still use it today. It's still used, obviously, in military uh, training academies all mm-hmm. over the world and so forth. It's, a, it's the Bible of warfare, basically, is what they call it. And so I had a curiosity about it. It's also a fairly small, compact book. Yeah. You know, these 12 chapters, or 13 chapters of these military maxims of his, basically his book of Proverbs. And I'm looking at that, and I just felt an impression that I was supposed to buy it and read it. So I was like, okay, God, I'll, I'll follow you on that. So I picked it up, I took it home, and I began to read it. And as I did, there was just like this downloading that was happening. Now, I'm a student of Scripture at this point. I've got a seminary behind me and so forth, so I've got a great base and all of that. But as I'm reading Sun Tzu, I'm looking at his parables. I'm looking at his, his, his proverbs on warfare and these places where he's talking about strategy. And it was like Holy Spirit was just sitting beside me going, and see, that's what spiritual warfare is like over here in this area of the Christian life when you're dealing with sin. All of these different things, the the discipline, the military intelligence, the call for military intelligence that Sun Tzu puts out in the art of war, the need for training, the need for, the, he sets forth the principle of, of what we call total war. Mm-hmm. Clausewitz um, elaborated on further later on. Clausewitz got the principle from Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu taught us this concept of total war where all of the engines, all of the powers of the state, its citizens and all of its different uh, mediums of industry, that they're all put in force and concert together if there is a great war against that country. He said all the powers of state need to be involved if they're going to win it and so forth. So this, we have this concept of total war. Well, Scripture teaches all of these principles, too, in terms of a spiritual warfare. Not that we're going out and we attack people. Not that we go out and do any of this stuff. But in terms of a spiritual warfare against, first of all, principalities and and powers in a heavenly realm. Demonic fallen angels. Okay, These powers that war against against mankind that seek damnation of people, these powers that um, that have their own designs that were good at one time and are fallen and re- reprobate through and through now. And then we have these issues of, of sin and we have the issue of, of the sway of the fallen world itself, its own culture. These three things are these battlefronts for the believer as you read more and more in Scripture. Mm-hmm. You see these things. You see these things at work. John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, uh, around the 15th verse, he says, All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So he recognizes this great sway in the world. Paul and Peter, of course, talk great in great detail about Satan, but we can see all Satan all the way back in the book of Genesis, working mm-hmm. the serpent, uh, <laughs> and so forth. But spiritual warfare became a uh, just a draw for me. 
early on, there was a, an intrigue, a natural curiosity that God was tickling inside of me with this. And I felt this draw that, that this is an area that I was supposed to learn about. And when I walked into that Barnes and Noble that day, I bought that book and, you know, God starts this downloading. I'm seeing what's going on at the end of reading that book. You know, I get through with this, and Sun, Sun Tzu is a, is a Chinese military classic. It's one of, uh, of about five they have in their repertoire. Mm-hmm. In the process of reading that and looking at those margin notes and so forth, uh, Japan was right there with them and so forth. So much of, uh, of their heritage there in terms of the, uh, of the classics, the military classics, and religious and philosophical thought Japan got from China. Uh, and so forth. And so I was aware of the samurai here at this point and so forth, but I just got through studying Sun Tzu and I was like, hmm. So, and I'm just having a conversation one day again, God, if if I'm seeing these parables in the teachings of Sun Tzu with, with the Christian spiritual warfare, what happens if I go and study the samurai? If I study the life and the lore and the lessons of the samurai, will I see lessons that can come out of that for the Christian as well? And again, I didn't get an audible voice. I didn't get a light from heaven or anything like that. You know, again, I just had this impression like God was looking at me with this little smile coming out of the corner of his mouth like a father going, why don't you go check it out, son? Yep. And and so I did. It launched this journey. And I began studying the samurai. In time, I started studying Spartan culture, Vikings, legionaries, gladiators. I started buying books. I mean, I've got an amazing library. Oh, yeah. And it just, it, it stirred this passion of, of ancient martial culture. And sure enough, as I began to survey all of these ancient civilizations and so forth, looking at these warrior cultures, the first thing that I recognized what he, was that each of them always had a code. They always had a code of virtue that was a, a guiding set of values mm-hmm. and beliefs that guided their warrior on and off the battlefield. It guided them to daring exploits on the battlefield, and then it restrained their passions and their powers in peacetime. It said, hey, this this power that you use over here, this lethal force, you need to you need to pull it back here yep. in society and so forth. And I, I so I recognized that there was a code among these ancient civilizations. I recognized there were a lot of lessons and so forth, but there are also a lot of archetypes. With the samurai, of course, is this concept of a servant warrior. He is both warrior and servant at the same time. There is no identification apart from these two things. He sees his life totally wrapped up inside of his master. In fact, it took to the point that if his master died in battle or his master took his life, the samurai didn't want to live either. He would he would go and take his own life mm-hmm. uh, in a special, a special aspect of ritual of seppuku. He, you know, he, he saw it in his own life and so forth because he was just so identified with that. But there was a concept there, this, this archetype of a servant warrior, that he was, he was there, he existed to do his master's bidding. He existed to serve. He existed to serve him. He existed to serve the betterment of his society. Did everybody live up to that? Of course not. But there was always the ideal of Bushido, the way of the warrior, mm-hmm. there until it became an actual code. And so within, as I surveyed all those ancient cultures, of course, we have chivalry in Europe. You look at Greek society and so forth, and they nurture that. And, of course, you see the, the culmination yeah. of the, the warrior archetype in the Greek society through the Spartans, mm-hmm. the, the delta force of their day. They were an entire professional warrior culture. 
that were extremely religious and they had a, a very strong philosophical base to them and so forth. So surveying all those things, saw these codes and saw these lessons and so forth. And then eventually, as I just began to share what I was learning with friends that I did life with, a friend of mine, Richard Henderson, uh, we had uh, put together uh, an event called Quest that was for men. We taught about biblical manhood on it and so forth. I, I taught for that and so forth. And the idea came of, you know, we need a training event for Christians centered around this paradigm of spiritual warfare because I'm tired of seeing Christians, for lack of any better word, get their butts handed to them in their daily walk because they don't have discipline in their daily life. Mm-hmm. Because they don't take time, take the time to live because they're doing life alone instead of with a group, instead of with the church. You know, but all these things that were fundamental errors that Sun Tzu went, if you do that on the battlefield, you get killed. Well, guess what? If you do it on the spiritual battlefield, you get killed too. Very true. You pay for it with uh, attrition in your family. You pay for it with attrition in your personal integrity in, in all of these areas. And so events began to form out of this. I did uh, one event and it went over well. It was a smash. And then women wanted to start doing the event. So shared it with them. And that led to studying feminine warrior culture as well, eventually. Looking at the samurai's counterpart, the Nijo, looking at the gladiatrix as she appeared in Roman history, Mm -hmm. looking at Matrona, who was holding down the fort while the Roman legionary was in the field and so forth. And so I explore six of those, the original six, Samurai, Spartan, Viking, Knight, Gladiator, Legionary in the Soldier Code. And we go back and forth in this kind of parable-like fashion. You know, Jesus, uh, Matthew 13 says that he never taught publicly without using parables. He constantly used illustrations. He appealed to an agrarian culture, which what did they use? They were ranchers, they were shepherds, they were uh, farmers, they were fishermen, all of these things. And so when he came to teach, he said, hey, the, the kingdom of heaven is like that guy with the net who's pulling those in. And the kingdom of heaven is like this guy who's sowing seed in the field. And the kingdom of heaven is like that master with his servants and their talents and so forth. I saw what I was learning and I went, you know what, this, that's what these things are. These things are parables these lore and lessons of history that, by the way, yes, people say, well, but but it's not the Bible. It's secular history. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the God of history. Let's talk about the sovereign God who's been writing the world's history forever and a day. Nothing in this world is happening without God's purview. Mm -hmm. Nothing is happening in this world that is beyond his scope and his plan. And the scripture is very emphatic from cover to cover that God is not just there watching He's there in the midst of writing it. He's there experiencing it with his people. And, of course, as you look at Scripture, you have military history and culture all over Scripture, from the Israelites' culture of the Old Testament all the way as you come into the New Testament. We have the legionary that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6 to talk about the armor of God that he appeals to, and Romans chapter 13 as he talks about the armor of light. As the appeals to in First Thessalonians 5, as he talks about the breastplate of faith and love. He appeals to Greco-athletic culture as well in First Corinthians 9 when he talks about boxing. He's actually talking about the Isthmian games that were in Corinth, these three very brutal, barbaric games that were the bloodiest in their games. They had four classes of games in ancient Greek society. The Isthmian games were one of them, and the, the three bloodiest events were Pancration, the Pupteo, boxing, or Pigmachia, and then the uh, chariot racing. 
And Paul mentions the boxing there in 1 Corinthians 9. He talks about boxing with his flesh. He's using that as a metaphor, talking about how beating our flesh into submission, our sinful nature. We've got to learn as Christians of how to subdue our, our lesser nature so that the nature of God in us can prevail and we can see good in the world. We can be as a force for good versus being some hapless puppet and, you know, and a liability really that way. So all over Scripture you have these things. And so in the book, it talks about these six martial cultures, and we just go back and forth. I lay out some more lessons from one culture. Then I walk people into Scripture into original language, we look at the Greek Hebrew, and we look at the history and culture of the biblical day. And then we translate it into the modern day. How does this apply to your life? And with every one of these cultures, you can see how there was a, a, a premier virtue in their life, like with the samurai. What may surprise the audience and what may surprise other people out there is that the premier virtue in the samurai culture was love. In the Zonotobi, in his the classic that he wrote, which is a, really a memoir of the of the samurai. I mean, Inazuma Toby was a, a diplomat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, he was a Quaker, but he was also part of a samurai lineage. Oh wow! And so, and so he was at uh, he was at the precipice in 1899 when he wrote this work at the precipice of that changeover from the Meiji Restoration, where. Japan was really coming out of the medieval ages and into the modern industrial age. And Inazona Toby was like this Renaissance man who had a lot of samurai in him, but a lot of Christian in him. And he, as he looked back on the samurai code of Bushido and talked about the love that a samurai had for his master, the absolute willingness to serve him and lay down his life for him. He said, there are parallels for the gospel all over this as you really look at it and of course no the samurai were not christian but he was talking about that what we call natural religion and how god can reveal himself through history through culture if we will pay attention mm-hmm. and look with the holy spirit's eyes so the book is fascinating that way and it's just kind of the the me pinning my journey now and i share a lot of personal stories in there too Kind of like some of we've been sharing here. Absolutely. And thank you for that as well. So tell us now, when will this be available and where can we get it? So the book will be available in uh, February 1st of uh, 2022. But if people would like to learn about it now, uh, get to know me a little bit more in my ministry and and a little bit about what this thing's going to be about, they can visit thesoldiercode.com. Thesoldiercode.com. And there's an author page. uh, There's a, a tab that says enlist if you'd like to get our newsletter. Right now, the book is in is in production with our publisher, and it's uh, finishing copy editing. We're doing uh, just started up yesterday internal artwork. Oh, nice! Uh, putting some, some special touches inside the book to really help people feel the culture. Really excited about that. It, th- th- this whole thing is just another journey in and of itself. Just getting a book. Absolutely, and you can see how excited you are about it too. Like I can tell by the look on your face and the inflection <laughs> in your voice. Like you can tell that it's a process, but it's so rewarding. It's so exciting. Like, and I'm. A, I'm excited to get my hands on this book too. So we're going to have links in the show notes for this for everybody that wants to follow up with that and get a copy when the time comes. We'll make sure that that option is available there too. 
And Duncan, I, I want to thank you for just being so generous with your time. I know we've gone a little bit over what we had discussed, but man, like the story was so powerful and it was just, it was like a roller coaster ride for me. And I'm sure you saw it. I got goosebumps through it. it and there were a lot of light bulb moments for me too. So I can't thank you enough for just being so generous. And that's an understatement for coming on here, sharing your story and your testimony and just telling that story like you did. Like I, I've been on a roller coaster ride and I've still got goosebumps just thinking about it. So thank you so much. You're welcome, uh, Flynn. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. To Absolutely. Share. And I hope that it, uh, that it has shared, uh, that, it, that it's encouraged somebody out there today. If there's somebody listening and, and they're struggling to find their way uh, and all that, I hope that they'll listen to this and, if they've given the gospel a look before and thought, yeah, you know, some of those crazy televangelist people or those those whacked out people over there, I just I would just encourage people. Every movement from the dawn of time has its eccentricity, its eccentricities, and mm-hmm. it has its hypocrites. Don't look at the hypocrites. Look at look at the other things. Look over here. First of all, look at the author of our faith and the carpenter. Absolutely. Look at the life of Jesus and then look at the other things of it and just explore and be willing to go and not just listen to the rumors and the hearsay and the pop culture, but to actually dig in and do the time to study it. Absolutely. And I can't I can't agree with that more than I am right now. That's just that's the 100 percent long and short of it right there. So thank you again for sharing that as well. And guys, I'm going to wrap it up right there. Duncan, thank you again for coming on and again being so generous. Guys, we're going to have links to his website and information about the book in the show notes. And as we're coming up on the holidays here, especially with Thanksgiving, I want to encourage everybody to be safe, especially if you're traveling. Enjoy the time with your loved ones and just take full advantage of that. And again, Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to our sponsors. If you like what I'm doing over here, make sure you like and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, leave us a five-star review and share it with your family. Share it with your friends. We've had awesome guests like Duncan here today, and we've had so many more amazing guests in the past as well. So if you haven't, if this is your first episode, go back in the archives and get caught up. I promise there's something there for everybody. So thank you to everyone. I hope you all have a safe and happy Thanksgiving, and I know you hear me. Hi, I'm Will Harridge, and I'm an audio engineer. But you would not believe the amount of mediocre voice actors I get in on the daily. It's scary, honestly. I always want to recommend them to Elise Bowman, who's the best voice acting coach I know. But I'm always afraid I'm going to offend them and be out of a job. Thankfully, I send the best ones over to her anyway over at EliseCoaches.com, and they keep coming back. Hi, I'm one of the mediocre talents that Will has to work with. And really, I'm thinking about looking up Elise myself. Go look at Elise Coaches today and start your career without ending mine. What he said.